Welcome, Mrs. Sampson. Thank you. So, uh, for a short interview, Jennifer Sampson is the McDermott Templeton Chief Executive Officer and President of United Way of Metropolitan Dallas. And she received a Bachelor's of Business Administration from Baylor and is a certified public accountant and then started her career at as a consultant at Arthur Anderson, which I think that's really cool because my mom also was a consultant at Arthur Anderson. Oh, that's great. Uh, I was actually an auditor. Oh, an auditor. So there's okay. two sides of that business. I use my accounting degree to be on the audit and accounting side, and then the consulting side was kind of more business advisory services. So Okay. Yeah. That's cool. Um, and then 10 years later, joined United Way as the senior vice president and CFO, and then 2004 was promoted to COO, and then in 2011 was promoted to CEO. That's right. Yes. So could you tell us about what your job entails and what you do on a day-to-day basis? Sure. So um, the day-to-day basis part is, you know, a little bit unpredictable, but as CEO, my responsibilities are to ensure that we um, advance the mission and vision of the organization, United Way Metropolitan Dallas. And for us, our mission is to ensure that all people in North Texas have access and opportunity to thrive. And we do that by um, investing in programs and um, engaging volunteers and um, developing advocacy efforts in support of that in three key areas. We focus on education, we focus on income, and we focus on health. And those three areas are what we call the building blocks of strong, thriving communities. And we think they're the building blocks because we know that kids um, who graduate from high school ready for success are more likely to get and keep good jobs that pay a living wage. That's the income block. And we know that um, children who are healthy are going to perform better in school, and parents who are healthy are going to perform better at work. So education, income, and health is a virtuous cycle, um, and that's what we focus on. That's our North Star. And so my job is to ensure that you know all of our activities, our operations, and our resources are focused on driving measurable results against that mission. So you know that includes. Um, uh, human capital management, you know, people success, so people who work inside of the organization. Um, It includes um, making sure that our operations um, are efficient and effective, um, and it it requires us to um, secure the resources necessary, so financial and otherwise, to invest in programs that help advance that goal. Um, So, you know, every year we're kind of right now uh, reflecting on performance for the last fiscal year. We look at, are we really driving impact in those three areas? Are we making a measurable difference? And can we articulate the social return on investment in education, income, and health against some very specific goals? We look at um, our, what we call resourcing the work, otherwise known as fundraising in the nonprofit business. Did we raise the resources necessary to help us advance the mission and achieve those community impact goals. And then really the third area is that human capital management side. Are we building the kind of culture where our employees are engaged, 
um, engaged in a way that helps drive, you know, more advancement against the mission. And we look at things like employee satisfaction and um, attrition, turnover, uh, retention of people uh, in that people success area. So, you know, at a super high level, that's what I'm responsible for. Mm -hmm. Um, What what does any given day look like? Every single day is different. Um, My... um, one of my strengths is connecting people to um, opportunities around investments. So I love the fundraising side of our business. I think it's very difficult if you're a philanthropic person and you care you know, about investing in community to not find something that we're doing in the areas of education, financial stability, or income, we call it income, or health that you're not interested in. I mean, that covers quite a waterfront. Mm-hmm. So I spend a lot of my time, um, you know, telling our story to new prospects, new companies. We, we are very tightly connected to the corporate community. So we do a lot of corporate fundraising um, to individuals and in communities that are philanthropic, um, trying to connect them to our work. So that's actually connecting them to our work. And it's also thinking about, you know, who's not involved in our work that we want to be involved in our work. So uh, I spend a lot of time, uh, in that area. Um, you know, as CEO, I have to, I have to manage risks. So I have to be careful to protect the brand and ensure that we are good stewards of the resources that are entrusted to us. So my background as a CPA and my finance, you know, experience at Anderson, um, you know, I was CFO before I became CEO. So I'm kind of wonky around the numbers and the financials. So, um, I spend a little bit of time in that area. I have a really strong CFO who's responsible for that day to day, but I have to keep my eye on that because we have to keep our eye on market trends, you know, what's changing in the world around us. And we live in a rapidly changing world every day. If mm-hmm. nothing else, the last, you know, three years living through a pandemic, um, you know, revealed that to everyone. So, you know, being able to, to pivot when necessary and make decisions about um, how we invest in our people and in our strategy, you know, that's another thing, being responsible for the strategy that helps us achieve the mission and, you know, evaluating our progress against that every day. So anyway, that's, I could go on and on. I am out in the community talking to people, raising money, um, connecting to our partners on the community impact side, you know, because we raise money from individuals, we invest in programs, managing my team, um, leading my team, inspiring my team. Um, That's, you know, part of that uh, employee engagement metric and making sure that we are, um, you know, we're building a very strong culture where people want to work and where we're a destination nonprofit where people, you know, we can recruit the best and the brightest. you know, that's just a snapshot. Today I was on the phone all day on a Zoom call. We have a national organization and I'm on a task force for them. So I was dealing with that for four hours, working with our um, human capital management leader around uh, year-end evaluations and performance reviews. And then it was time for me to come see you. So, okay. you know, within a nine-hour day, that's, that's what I got accomplished today. <laughs> so you were talking about fundraising and getting money for certain different activities who do you mainly target to get that money and how do you go about doing that yeah so that's a good question we are origin as a network so united way dallas is a part of a network of over a thousand united ways across the country and around the world 
And when we started, we're almost 100 years old. When we started, we were prim- primarily focused on raising money in uh, workplace campaigns inside of a company. So when I started over 20 years ago, probably 95% of our revenue came from employee giving campaigns. So at Anderson, where I worked before, that's a good example. When I started in 1992, um, I got my health insurance form and I got my United Way pledge card on my first day of work. So here's how you get your health insurance. We expect everyone to pay their fair share, you know, to United Way. That's our, you know, giving um, uh, focus as a firm. And so I gave to United Way because that's what I was expected to do. And that's what everybody did at Anderson. That was the, that was the construct of where most of the money came from um, for a very, very long time. But as you know, the world has changed and um, within employee giving campaigns, you know, the democratization of giving, meaning people want to choose where their money goes. They don't want an employer to say, here's your health insurance and you have to give to United Way. They, people want choice, right? So over time you know, people coming out of college, starting jobs, they may have a nonprofit organization that they already love and care about and they're passionate about. So over time, the amount of resources coming from those employee giving campaigns to United Way has declined, not because we're not doing great work, but because choice has become so prevalent. And with a younger generation of workers, it takes time to inspire uh, a person to this model, right? Mm -hmm. Because we're basically... um, you know, sometimes people describe that part of our business as, you know, United Way could be a mutual fund for investment in a variety of different organizations because we do the work to evaluate the providers, nonprofit providers in the areas of education, income, and health that are doing the best work, who have goals and a logic model that aligns with our strategy. So in education, for example, our North Star is ensuring that kids are reading on grade level by third grade. So we're going to invest in those programs that can demonstrate we're doing all the things necessary to get kids ready to start school on time so they can have the vocabulary so that by the time they're in third grade, they're reading on grade level. Because if they are reading on grade level, the likelihood that they're going to graduate from high school ready for success is much higher, right? So we do all that work, and we have a very competitive process. We evaluate and determine best investment. So you know, that's what we do. If you're coming out of school and you're not into that yet or you don't value that process, you might want to give locally to your favorite nonprofit organization. And that's what that's why that channel has gotten smaller for us. Does that make sense? Where we started, you know, that was 100% of our funding. Now that channel's getting smaller. So it pushed us to diversify our fundraising activities to look for other sources of funding, which we did at, Dow- at Dallas United Way about 12 years ago. So other places that the resources come from are corporations. So a corporation could have a philanthropic giving budget or they could have a foundation within the corporation where they give to what the corporation cares about, the corporation's philanthropic priorities. So what United Way has evolved to become um, for those corporations is we're like a um, corporate social responsibility. CSR is a buzzy word in my sector, corporate social responsibility. We're an advisor. We are a CSR advisor. In some cases, a company might call us an ESG advisor for environment, social, and uh, governance because we're the S and ESG. So a company, let's just, you know, I'll take 
Frito-Lay, for example, Frito-Lay headquartered here, PepsiCo Foods North America is the name of the company. They have a lot of jobs in Southern Dallas. Mm -hmm. They want to build the pipeline of the future of young people who live in Southern Dallas who go to work for their company. So they came to us and said, how can you help us do this? Like, how do we build the workforce of the future in Southern Dallas? So we partnered with them and we co-created an initiative called Southern Dallas Thrives. It took us about 18 months to develop the concept, but it it's basically a program that ensures at the beginning, three things. One, there were, there were high quality early childhood opportunities, enough high quality early childhood opportunities in Southern Dallas. At the time we started, there were not. You could argue that there still are not, but we're making progress. The, the second leg of the three-legged stool was food insecurity. Southern Dallas is a food desert, and so making sure that people have access to healthy, nutritious meals. Again, if kids are healthy, they're gonna do better in school. And then the third leg was workforce development and job training, so that students who were graduating from high school, some of them aren't gonna, are not gonna go on to college. They wanna go enter the workforce. So if that's the path that they choose, we wanna make sure that they have the skills necessary to get and keep a good job. Mm -hmm. And in some cases that could be a certification program, well, a job training program that, that pushes them a little bit higher up the food chain in terms of what they could earn in that job. So workforce development was the third leg of that stool. So now we're like six years into Southern Dallas Thrives and it keeps changing and evolving and more funders are coming in and putting their particular philanthropic priority in it. Like for example, AT&T joined the initiative and their philanthropic priority and corporate imperative is closing the digital divide, making sure everyone has access to the internet. So in Southern Dallas, if you're a kid and you don't have access to the internet, you're not going to be as prepared in school as your peers who do, right? Mm -hmm. If you're an adult looking for a job, you're not going to be able to enter the job force or be a part of the economy if you don't have access to the internet. You can't right. go out and, mm -hmm. if you don't have access to the internet, you can't participate in telehealth, you know, and get, you know, the access to telemedicine that other people can. So that's a long way of saying we still partner with corporations, but we act as an advisor. We co-create and design targeted initiatives and programs that help address a specific problem. In addition, we work with high net worth individuals who have the ability to invest in our programs and also help us build an endowment, um, which our endowment spends off an annuity every year that helps us fund our community impact work. And our endowment is um, significant, so much so that it is the second largest contributor of resources, under management, unrestricted resources to support our community impact work. So those are the key areas. So we still work with indiv individuals in the workplace. Mm -hmm. um, when I started that, the amount we would raise from employees in the workplace, the giving campaigns was probably close to $30 million. Mm -hmm. Today it's, you know, annually. Today it's closer to 12. Mm -hmm. So the difference between 30 and 12 is what we have to go out and raise from other sources, corporations, individuals, um, private foundations invest in our work. Uh, because oftentimes with the smaller uh, private family foundations, they don't have the bench to do the research and analysis and evaluation that we can do. Mm -hmm. So like we're similar to a CSR advisor in a, in a corporation, we are a philanthropic 
um, investment advisor to family foundations who they may say, hey, can we give our health and human service investment strategy work to you so that we can spend our time, it could be one or two people, focused on you know, what we care about in the arts or the environment. So it's really a very broad spectrum of donors, a very diverse, you know, and that's evolved over time, um, group of people that we raise money from, people and organizations. So I'm going to try to simplify it. There's, so pretty much you take uh, people, money that people want to donate, and then you kind of manage it and then put it into the right places? I would, I wouldn't call it, I call it investment, Investment. not donation. Uh-huh. It's an investment in community impact. So uh-huh. people who want to advance, invest in opportunities that advance outcomes in education, more kids ready for success, yeah. income, financial stability, have the tools they need to sustain themselves and families and save for the future and health. Uh-huh. If you care about all three of those things, that's where we work. And so we are partnering with the programs that drive the most measurable outcomes in those three areas. And if that's what you care about, there's no better investment because no one yeah. else is doing what we're doing oh, in those three few, areas. Can you list a few of those measurable impacts that the programs make? Absolutely. So our we have a 10-year community impact strategy called Aspire United 2030. And we launched it in 2020, right in the middle of the pandemic. So we did all of the work to develop the strategy like in the two and a half years leading up to 2020. And this strategy was built off of a 10-year strategy we had that we launched in 2010 called United 2020. So we have a whole decade of results and measurement and evaluation to help inform the strategy that we're working on right now. So at the highest level um, in education, income, and health, I call these our billboard goals. Um, in education, I mentioned um, improvements in third grade reading. Our goal is to see a 50% improvement from the baseline back in 2020 in third grade reading scores. Okay, that's the highest level. Um, in income, living wage attainment is the goal, and it's, I think, a 20% increase over where we started so that more people are getting and keeping jobs and that they're paid a living wage right? And a job that has a career ladder and benefits. And then um, in health, our goal is it's almost universal. It's 97% um, people in in our service area in North Texas that have access to uh, medical insurance, right? So they have a medical home and they're not using the emergency room as their primary source of health care. So at the highest level, that's what we're tracking. That's what we talk about in the community. But we also have mountains. We have 131 um, priority impact metrics in each of those areas, education, income, and health, that we're tracking. Because we know third grade reading is a marker, but if kids aren't starting school ready to learn, if they don't have access to high-quality early childhood education, they're never going to make it to third grade, right? So then we're tracking also, you know, kids that are um, going through these job programs, workforce development training, and that kind of leads to the next one, are they getting and keeping good jobs that pay a living wage? So there's mountains of data underneath those top three goals that we track every year. And I mean, not to get too wonky in the numbers, but it is kind of wonky the way we measure this. And we partner with third-party um, 
evaluator. So it's not just United Way saying, hey, we made this happen. It's an independent third party that comes in and reviews all of this every year and says you're moving the needle or you're not moving the needle. So um, in each of those three areas, we take 12 of those 131 um, targeted metrics and we've created kind of a, uh, an index that we hope to achieve every single year and it's within the like 75 to 85% range. So that's all the outcomes from all of the service providers that we invest in, as well as the targeted initiatives that I mentioned like Southern Dallas Thrives. Does that, that, does that make sense? Yeah. It's not, it's complicated. It's, um, you know, measuring the impact of a uh, investment like the investments we're making. Sometimes this, it's really difficult to quantify, right? It's like when you're helping people, it's kind of like evaluating if, am I a good parent to Hilton? You know, what are the things I'm doing to ensure that he's getting everything he needs from his dad and from me to make sure that he's a successful young man, that he's on the path to manhood, right? That's, that's not easy to measure. And oftentimes when you're dealing with, you know, lives changing, it's, it's difficult to measure. But I would argue that if we didn't have the, um, the quantitative metrics, that pretty much corporations demand these days, mm -hmm. we would not be able to raise the money that we're raising to invest in these programs. So it's, you know, it's hard work. It's expensive. Um, it, it's really challenging in a year like this year. So we're following massive disruption in all three of those areas, education, income, and health related to COVID. You know, learning loss has never, was never higher than it has been in the last couple of years. Job displacement, especially in early in COVID, was, was you know, people were unemployed, and then, you know, health was at the center of everything. So one of the things we had to do this last year is because we developed the strategy pre-pandemic, we had to bring in experts to help us kind of reset those metrics for a short period of time because there's no way we would be able to achieve the outcomes that we set in, you know, 2018 and 2019. Um, so it's pretty, it's, it's wonky. It's, um, I love it because my background is, you know, account, accounting and finance and numbers. Um, and I would, I would tell you that it's for the kinds of investors we're working with at, at the highest level, it's critical, um, for us to have that data in order to raise the money or in order to gen, you know, um, inspire the confidence that we do within these companies. You wouldn't know this because you're young and you haven't entered the workforce yet, but when I did back in 1991, um, the philanthropic side of companies, there really wasn't one. Um, mm. You know, now it's a really important part of every corporation. They are evaluated by their investors on, you know, purpose and are they driving social good. And so the sophistication within a corporation around their um, philanthropic investments and how that is um, driving business results has never been more important than it is right now. So nonprofits have, have really had had to you know up our game. We we've done this for years now, but you really you can't just be asking for a handout. You know, hey, we want to help people. We want to sprinkle goodness to these great organizations that are doing good work. We have to demonstrate that there's a social return on investment right. or we won't survive. And our work's too important to, for that to be, um, you know, the answer. Um, so 
you know, the status quo for nonprofits 15, 20 years ago um, is not the expectation and really the demand from funders today. Like the, the feedback circles are really important, like having those um, numeric statistics yeah. are, like you can measure yes. are important for those other um, uh, investors for you yeah. that they can see that they're, what, what they're doing is actually making a difference. Absolutely. It matters. So I was, could you walk us through what your career mindset, mindset was like going through high school and then college at Baylor and then Arthur Anderson and then <laughs> uh, how you finally decided to end up at um, United Way? Yeah. I mean, it was definitely a, a, not um, you know, a path that I had planned early. Um, <laughs> Um, in high school, I mean, I had so many different jobs. My dad was a dentist. I worked in his office. I worked at Grandy's. I worked at Ranger Stadium. I worked at an ice cream store, mm-hmm. all kinds of crazy things. I was really mm-hmm. tall, and I did some catalog modeling. I wanted to move to California. My parents uh, both went to Baylor, and they said um, you know, their college investment was going to Baylor, and if I wanted to go to college... Mm-hmm. That's where their investment was going. So I went to Baylor. I did. I had no idea what I wanted to major in um, when I started college. Uh, I liked business. Um, I liked numbers. So I was interested in the business school. But my dad was really my inspiration. My dentist dad, who's retired now, but um, you know, he 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 ran a business when you're a, a dentist, a doctor, a professional. He had his own practice, but he had no business background whatsoever. So for him. You know, the hardest lesson was to learn how to run your own business and keep the books and do all the things that make a business profitable and take care of employees. And so we always said that he regretted not having that background. And he uh, believed that, uh, you know, and I agree, um, accounting is the language of business. If you understand accounting and you know how to read financial statements and evaluate, um, you know, the changes in financial statements that's a really important skill. And so he, he kind of pushed me into the accounting track in business school. And so that's, that's how it happened. <laughs> and I started early and I declared early. So I, I was in accounting and um, they called it management information systems back then. Um, I double majored. It was computers and um, it was way before the internet. So um, I had an accounting and management inf- information systems degree. And Anderson at the time, Arthur Anderson back then became Anderson, but mm-hmm. Arthur Anderson was a big recruiter at Baylor. Um, and, you know, I saw their name on the, the lounge in the business school. And, you know, early on, I thought they were the best of the best. Mm-hmm. I was probably brainwashed a little bit because I didn't know much mm-hmm. of anything about uh-huh. the difference um, from the firms of the firms. Um, but they recruited me. Um, at Baylor and I went to work for them here in Dallas, uh, right out of college in the audit practice. So that's how it happened. Okay. <laughs> and, and how did you end up at United Way? Um, that was another kind of Anderson blessing, a partner, the partner that actually hired me when I was at Baylor was on the board of United Way. And, um, he was a good friend and mentor. In fact, his son, um, oldest son, Jeff, went to uh, St. Mark's. Anyway, he, I had talked to him over the years. I stayed at Anderson for 10 years 
And um, I never dreamed that I would stay that long. And so he and I would talk all the time about, you know, different things and opportunities um, outside of public accounting. And when the CFO position opened up at United Way, when he was on the board, he asked me if I would ever be interested in the CFO position because he knew that I enjoyed working with nonprofits in the community. I'd, I'd done that. I loved doing that, representing Anderson. And it was, you know, 10 years of public accounting. And I thought, well, that might be interesting. Mm -hmm. So I explored it. And, you know, really the board of United Way was and still is um, made up of leaders of corporations. So in my Anderson world, I think the thing I worried about the most is that I would move out of, you know, being connected to business and being connected to business people and companies and what was going on, you know, mm -hmm. with different companies in North Texas, because that interests me a lot. And, you know, the more I got to know the board, the board was like a um, kind of a microcosm of some of the best companies in Dallas, which was attractive to me. Mm -hmm. I had an opportunity to take the skills that I had learned at Anderson and, you know, been, I mean, effectively, I was a consultant of accounting mm -hmm. services, mm -hmm. right? Um, and would report back to companies what we learned. I could actually put that into practice. So I could take theory and put it into practice inside of an organization. And I love the mission. And I, you know, like I said, um, United Way was a part of the DNA of the firm when I started working there. Health insurance, United Way. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I knew United Way, yeah. loved the mission, loved the opportunity to put into practice the skills that I had learned, and loved the people that I met who were leading the organization. So it was a big transition, but it came kind of when I was least expecting it. Mm -hmm but it was also the right time. And it's very difficult to know when that is. I mean, it wasn't like I was dreaming to do that and I, that's my next step. It just mm -hmm. kind of happened. And do you think like the reason you did that was like at a like philanthropic like way of thinking, like, like now I want to like, I've worked for 10 years and I want to give back more or was it just a, like another way of using your like business skills to like make an impact? I think it's both mm -hmm. um, because you probably know this, you know, the, the compensation in a nonprofit yeah, industry um, sector is very different than compensation in a for-profit mm -hmm. sector. So you have to make a bit of a sacrifice um, in terms of your expectations around compensation if you want to do this work. You just do. So, you know, to your point, that could be a little bit of your give. You know, I care about this so much that I'm willing to um, sacrifice a compensation path so that I can do this work. But the return, for me personally anyway, is so rewarding and fulfilling that, you know, it wasn't, it, for me, it was a, it was a great trade-off. Um, at the same time, also having the opportunity to take my skills and apply them in an environment where in the past I was just, you know, consulting and advising was very attractive to me too. And, you know, I think that the opportunity at that time to really build something completely different was so obvious mm -hmm. that that excited me too. Um, so a little bit of both. So there was this one time I was volunteering for this organization I won't throw them under the bus, but um, we were handing out meals at a homeless center, um, and we, there was like a photographer there, and it seemed like the focus was on, like not on the actual like helping other people, but on the, the fact that we were helping other people, and 
my question to you is like how important are intentions in like this altruistic world um do you feel like having good intentions is as important as doing good deeds or do you feel like it's not as important as long as like good things are being done hmm so let me make sure i understand your question so in your example I'm, you know, putting words in your mouth, so correct me if I'm wrong. You you felt like maybe it was the marketing of the work you were doing that was more important than the actual work you were doing. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that doesn't feel good. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, the, the rewarding part of this job for me is um, working with people who do the right thing because it's the right thing. You know, they have a responsibility. They feel a personal responsibility to whom much is given, much is required, right? Right. And they want to live in a community where kids are graduating, kids are performing well in school, where people are not homeless or living in poverty, and we have, you know, a healthy population. And um, it it is part of our responsibility, in my opinion, as people who don't worry, you know, I suspect that none of you um, or your families um, are in a position where you worry a lot about where your next meal is going to come from, right? Or that you're not going to have a place to live. And so we are fortunate in that we don't have that burden. There are way too many people who do. And if we want the community where we live to be healthy, strong, and thriving, I believe, it's my personal opinion, it's part of our responsibility to make that happen. And we can do that through a lot of different means. Financial investment is one, where you feel like you're investing in programs that actually do help people. Volunteering is another way to invest your time. Um, And in your case, uh, you know, volunteer, we do tons of volunteer work activities with United Way. And I always leave them feeling... um, very inspired and motivated and um, I don't know, like we, we did something that's going to make a difference, right? Mm-hmm. And that kind of investment is, you know, I think equally as important as financial investments and especially for young people who may not have the capability of making financial investments at a really young age. And then the other way you can give back is using your voice to advocate for public policy and you know, other things in school, if you're on the newspaper staff or whatever, if you have a channel and a platform and you can use your voice for good, that's another way to, to invest in and build strong communities. So, yeah, I mean, there are, there are opportunities even at United Way. Anytime we do events where we're engaged in helping people, there oftentimes are cameras or the news is interested and you know, I view that as an opportunity to amplify our story. You know, if cameras, we have to develop content and materials all the time to help sell our work to investors. And so mm-hmm. there's a reason to, you know, I, I, here's how I think about it. Just because we're a nonprofit organization doesn't mean that we shouldn't employ the same um tactics and activities that a for-profit organization does like for example marketing Mm -hmm. because we need more donors and in order to to um you know drive more investment in our work we have to be able to market it they have to see what we're doing right so um if you do it in the right way you are going to drive more revenue to -hmm. support the community impact north star that you have but i mean everybody's got to have their own kind of personal um, 
evaluator up for things like perhaps what you saw. If you feel like it's the intention's not there, or it's you know not driven by the right reasons. Unfortunately, things like that happen in, in communities across the country here and across the country as well. Um, I don't know if that answered your question. But. Yeah, that, that's helpful. I, I think that's cool how um, marketing teams and, and that public spectacle can actually like push your, your mission forward. Yeah, we want our mission to show up in the newspaper, mm -hmm. on the news, mm -hmm. um, and in any other social media, in any other way that can drive more eyeballs mm -hmm. to our work. Because the more attention our work is driving, the higher the likelihood that we're going to get more volunteers, that we're going to be able to raise more money, and therefore drive more impact, which is, that's, that's why we're doing what we're doing. Right. But just because we're a nonprofit organization, we shouldn't think that we shouldn't employ all of those same tactics as a, I mean, our investors expect us to run the organization like it's a for-profit business, mm -hmm. right? And to do all those things that a for-profit business would do to ensure efficiency, effectiveness, and drive, you know, strategy against mission and purpose and vision. Okay. In your speech at St. Mark's a few months ago, you stated that progress happens when you bring diverse people together. Um, and work from different angles. I totally agree with this, but how do you maintain an effective, diverse environment as opposed to one where there's just um, diverse opinions that are just pulling it from different angles and it, like the, your mission is actually like staying still or moving really slowly and the diversity feels like it's more of a hindrance? Yeah. Um, so... As the CEO of the organization, it's my job to ensure that there, there's diversity reflected across, you know, around the table. And for me, that includes staff, and it also includes a board of directors, because I've got two levers to help drive impact. One is my staff organization, and one is the governance body of the organization. They both accelerate impact. Mm -hmm. So both have to be diverse. And with diversity, as I said at the um, you know St. Mark's event, you just get a, a lot of different new ideas. Um, you it challenges your thinking, right? So um, when you have a lot of different ideas, you're going to have what I call cognitive dissonance, meaning you know there's going to be some healthy tension because people you know are coming at an issue from two different sides. It's my job as the CEO to make sure that every, every voice feels heard and that people feel comfortable expressing their opinions, even if we disagree with one another and we do it respectfully, right? Mm -hmm. It's not a good example of what's happening in our world and country yeah. right now, but you can have healthy debate and cognitive dissonance and disagree in a very productive way. Um, it's my job at the end of the day, what I tell people is I have 51% of the vote, right? Mm -hmm. So I can listen to a lot of different opinions, but at the end of the day, I have to evaluate mm -hmm. what I think is the best decision for the organization. And that's my job. That's my opportunity and my responsibility. But I want to do it in a way where everyone feels like they've, they've had a chance to inform a decision to share their point of view and it's like that's a that's one of the biggest focuses um 
it has been this past year and moving forward into the next year for me is to make sure that um, we are communicating effectively, right? We are connecting with each other and that's kind of where this, you know, feedback loop, what do you think, giving people chance to break out into different groups and discuss a topic and bring their ideas back. Mm -hmm. um, what did I say? Communication, connecting, um, recognition, uh, making sure that people feel appreciated for the work that they do and the opinions that they bring to the table. And then the fourth area, these are my four things with connected to people's success. The fourth thing is development and training. So making sure people, especially young people coming into a new organization, learning so many new things that, that they get the training and the development they need to perform well in the job, you know, and to meet and exceed expectations. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's not easy. There's not like a silver bullet answer to how to do this without creating some combustion and some mm -hmm. tension. Um, I have a really strong senior team and my team helps me. So it's, I don't ever feel like I'm out on an island all by myself. Um, when we're dealing with tricky, touchy, sensitive issues, we talk about it in a large group, but I have my senior team leaders talking about those same issues in their departmental meetings. And so communication kind of trickles down, connectivity trickles down. And it's something that we have to work on all the time, doing it in a respectful mm -hmm. way that honors everyone's, you know, point of view and opinion. You can't have a wrong point of view. You can't have a wrong opinion. Um, will that rise to a level that, you know, makes a uh, big pivot inside of a business? It depends on what it is. But I, I don't know if that answered your question either. It's, 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 um, increasingly more and more important within organizations and human capital management and people success. Okay. So as a CEO and leader, what do you think are the most important qualities of a leader? Um, I think integrity, um, responsibility, um, integrity being a person of high ethics, responsibility, doing what you say you're going to do mm -hmm. and following through. Um, Drive, for me, um, is a big one. Uh, as a leader, you want to demonstrate that um, you're going to do what responsibilities, I'm going to do what I say I'm going to do. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to have a sense of urgency. The drive is I'm going to have a sense of urgency to ensure that we are positioning our organization to be the very best it can be. And there's a lot of work that goes into having that kind of drive and sense of urgency. You have to be watching what's going on all around you all the time if you want to continue to excel. Um, I think being uh, a leader um, means that you can inspire people to do things perhaps they would never want to do on their own. Like you inspire them, you lead them to a place that they might not go on their own. But I also think a, a leader has to manage people at the same time that they're leading. They have to manage them and hold them accountable to goals. And that's, that's not always easy. That's not, not the fun part of leadership. But if you don't do that, if you don't set goals and expectations for people and then hold them accountable to those goals and expectations, they're not going to perform at the level. They're not going to grow. You're not training and developing them. Uh, to be the very best that they can be. But management is, is not easy. 
right? I, I think every leader has to be a ma master at leading and managing. Both are very important. Mm -hmm. um, communication. A leader has to be an excellent communicator, um, both, uh, you know, in, in words and, you know, oral communication, but also in writing. Um, there's so much of the communication that we do every single day that's in writing. It's an email that's a quick note or request or a report out to inform. Communication is critical, and I worry about that with a younger generation mm -hmm. that's mm -hmm. so used yeah. to communicating and, you know, sound bites and social media and texting, including my own son. Um, those are some of the key things. Um, a leader has to be strategic and really look downfield and think mm -hmm. about what is important in the short term, but how do you keep your eye on the ball for the long term as well? Mm -hmm. Like what's coming, you know, what's coming at you and, and how you prepare for that. Risk management is important for a leader also. My background as an auditor, like prepared me for that. Um, I think being competitive is important for a leader. Um, if you're not competitive, you're not, you know, on the top of your game all the time and you might be comfortable accepting the status quo, right? And we keep, we live in a world where the status quo is not acceptable yeah, it's, changing it, it's changing all the time. We live in a rapidly changing world. And if you don't stay abreast of what's happening in the world and being to me, being competitive is always looking around to yeah. see how you can better, you know, your work, your team, your outcomes, your performance. Um, I think that's what makes you successful. And then I will add, I could keep going on, but I'll say one more thing and I'll stop talking relationships. Um, developing relationships. I think I said this at St. Mark's, but um, investing in the time necessary to get to know people um, who you admire and respect, people who you can learn from, um, will pay enormous dividends throughout your life. And if you look for those people who you know you you respect and admire so much because they're doing things you want to do, you, they're doing things you want to learn how to do, reaching out and telling them that and looking for mentors and advisors that will help push you and challenge you and um, tell you what you're doing wrong um, is the best thing as a leader to have in your arsenal of tools. And, you know, developing those relationships in the right way lead to people who will be, you know, your lifelong advocates and friends and jump in the foxhole with you when times get tough. Um, so building, you know, finding the right ones and nurturing, feeding, and caring for those relationships is a critical part of leadership um, and success in, in life and in business. Okay. So if you could boil it down to one simple message, uh, what's one piece of advice you would give to high schoolers like us looking to craft their own future? Mm -hmm. I would say at your age... Um, and this sounds probably kind of trite, but it, it really is an extension of what I just said. Uh, show me your friends and you'll show me your future, mm -hmm. right? Who do you, who do you spend the most time with? And, you know, are they people that, uh, you're learning from? Are they people that 
inspire you to be the best version of yourself, whether it's a friend or a buddy around this table at this podcast or the teachers that you, um, you know, really reach out to for advice and, and coaching outside of the classroom. Um, who are the upper class men at St. Mark's that you stay in touch with? Who are the, you know, girls that you hang out with? Um, the, the, the people you spend the most time with are going to influence you in so many ways. And when you're young, choose well, Mm. um, pick great friends, pick great mentors and advisors. Um, they'll help you as you're trying to figure out, I mean, you said at the beginning of the session, you're not sure what you want to do. Spend time with diverse, a diverse group of people who, uh, will help you get there and, you know, never give up. Be so persistent and driven um, to learn and have that growth mindset that, you know, you can do whatever you set your mind to because you can, you really can. So one more question. Um, Could you share with us one personal story, one of your favorite stories about a kid or a family that's really touched you, who you've been able to help? Yeah. Um, I will tell you, a story about a founder of a nonprofit organization who his name's Chad Hauser. And he, um, when, when we first met, well, this is before I knew him, but he was a chef in a restaurant called Parigi on Oak Lawn, still operating. You may have been there. And in his role as chef at Parigi, he got to work with young people, um, in the kitchen all the time. And oftentimes those young people in the kitchen were coming from um, broken homes, had been in and out of juvenile detention and were working as dishwashers and, um, you know, working in the kitchen to help Chad. And Chad taught them how to do things, how to um, make ice cream or serve a meal to a person in the restaurant who would say, thank you. Mm -hmm. And these are kids who, you know, the ones who'd been in juvenile jail, they'd made mistakes they were in environments that weren't encouraging them, and they were looking for a second chance. So working with Chad, Chad kind of gave them hope in the restaurant. Like, it's okay, you made a mistake. You can bounce back from that and have a great life. And they would be in the restaurant, and the restaurant guests were always encouraged, this meal was delicious. Thank you so much. Mm, this yeah. was fabulous. So Chad kind of watched all that happening for a period of time, and then he decided he was going to sell his interest in Parigi and start his own nonprofit organization. So it was a nonprofit startup idea that Chad had. And he wanted to build uh, an organization that, that helped these kids. So take them out of juvenile jail, put them through a job training program and life skills training program so they get the skills they need and have the help they need to learn how to keep a good job so that they can get out of juvenile detention and go do great things in the world. So his program, you may be familiar with it, and now his organization in restaurants called Cafe Momentum. Have you heard of it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Cafe Momentum was the first um, startup organization that we funded as, as we have a social innovation accelerator, and we started raising money to invest in new ideas with new programs that were changing people's lives, and we invested in Chad. Um, he was just a guy with an idea at that time. 
Um, he lived in our building, sat right outside my door and we worked with him to help build the, um, business plan for cafe momentum so that they could open the restaurant and serve more kids. Um, today, you know, they've been the restaurant, we, we invested in, in Chad in 2013 and they opened the restaurant in 2017. And, you know, now they've moved thousands of kids boys at the time was just boys now boys and girls through the program who have graduated and gone on to get great jobs outside of cafe momentum some of them have gone back to college to culinary school at dallas community college and the amount of resources so it's it's the restaurant of second chances is what chad would say um and the number of second chances that he's provided you know all of those young people um have you know put them on a path for a new life in Dallas or wherever they end up, you know, living after Dallas and has helped generate so much savings for the city of Dallas because those kids are not the recidivism rate. They've reduced the recidivism rate from like up in the high fifties down to the low teens. So that means they're not going back into the juvenile detention centers. Um, and that saves the city a lot of money. So, um, you know, that Chad and I, yeah, Chad and I have been friends since the very beginning um, and he gets to work with the kids every day. I don't get to work. I'm not boots on the ground every day working with nonprofit organizations like he is. But I go to Cafe Momentum and is, every chance I get, I, I am that customer in the restaurant that gets to say thank you. And we believe in you. And you've got a bright future to those young men and women who are going through that program. And I'm not supposed to have a favorite, but we started our social innovation accelerator back in 2011. And we've invested in over 60 of those um, startup entrepreneurs since that time. Cafe Momentum is my favorite story because Chad was the first one because I've watched him build that business and seen the number of lives that they've impacted over the years. Um, so, you know, that's, that's a story about somebody that I believe in who gave it all up to really invest his entire life into um, – giving these kids a second chance, which is much more noble than what I do. I mean, I run an organization that ensures that we have the resources to do that kind of work, but Chad's doing that work every day. I mean, he's in, you know, they've scaled the concept beyond Dallas. They have a, a cafe momentum in um, Pittsburgh and in Nashville now. And I just think, you know, what it, it to scale cafe momentum is a great thing. But it's difficult to scale a program like Cafe Momentum unless you ha can replicate the Chad Housers of the world, you know, and have them in all these other places. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us. We really appreciate it. Sure. Thank you so much for spending your time and energy. To You're welcome. Thank you for the us. invitation. I hope it was helpful. Really okay. Nice. <laughs>